and welcome to the Free Like Me podcast by FLM. This podcast aims to help people like you navigate the world of financial planning. We'll be delving into things that we and our clients care about, talking about hot topics, and inviting you to get to know our team a little bit better. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Free Like Me podcast from FLM Wealth Management. I am Ben Smith, your host for today, Chartered Financial Planner and enthusiast of all things money. Um, Really delighted today to be joined by two colleagues of mine to discuss how we will pay for it. Specifically, we're talking about the £375 billion worth of stimulus that has been given out over the last few months by the UK government. Rishi Shunak has introduced schemes such as furlough, uh, business release, which we've all become very familiar with. And I'm sure we all benefited from some of the eat out to help out schemes. And that's come at a cost. So the attention is now shifting towards tax and the various what we call fiscal measures that the government could use to recoup some of the hole that they have in their pocket. So delighted to be joined firstly uh, by Trishna, who is one of our tax advisors internally at FLM. Um, She is an enthusiast of getting up at the crack of dawn. I know she likes an early morning exercise, getting out on her bike. Trish, it's great to have you here. Lovely to be here, Ben. (laughs) Good to hear your voice as ever. Um, (laughs) Secondly, he's from Devon. He now lives in London. He's probably one of the trendiest people I know, potentially. And uh, his name is Sebastian Labarf. He's a terrible golfer. Seb, it's great to have you here. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for the intro as well. I, I probably should mention that I'm an equally terrible golfer, but any time to get a dig in at your skills on the greens. <laughs> Fair enough. Right. So what I'm going to do, guys, um, I'd like to sort of dive straight into this. Um Some of our listeners have probably seen some of the press that has been around in the last few weeks. Um, There's lots of different fiscal measures that the government can use. Seb, coming to you first, um, where do you see, say, the obvious levers for the government to pull with all of this? Yeah, so obviously there is going to be a point at which we have to repay some of this money. Um, now, we have been here before in the past, if we're looking back to the sort of World War eras, where um, our debt to um, GDP ratio was similar, if not worse, than where we are today. Um, but ultimately, the main ways to get out of this are increased taxation. So there's lots of different options, which we'll go through today. Um, so second is increasing our GDP. So obviously spending more to hopefully get more, uh, get the economy uh, growing over time. Um, And the third is probably inflation. So inflation we're all relatively familiar with. Uh, You know, the best kind of example is penny sweets. If you think back are no longer penny sweets. So get more expensive over time. Exactly. So if you're looking at debt, if debt's remaining the same over time, actually, the debt gets smaller. So that's a way that you can actually improve your debt ratio. So, again, none of these three things will be a silver bullet, but a combination of all of those three things is likely to be the ways in which we can kind of get out of the situation we're in and going to be. So it's, only, it's likely to get worse before it's going to get better at this stage. 
Mm. And I guess the, the the no silver bullet piece is is a key one, uh, I would assume, because various different governments in the past have tried different things. If you think back to David Cameron's government, they were obviously quite uh, hot on trying to tighten the belt and austerity, whereas other gov- governments have gone down that route of spending their way out of trouble to increase the GDP, as Seb said. So lots of options. Um, Trish, coming to you, where do you... I mean, if, if you looked at the various different income taxes that, that a client would pay, or sorry, various different taxes a client would pay, what, what do you think is an obvious one for the government to look at? I would say probably income tax and national insurance as a quick fix, because the way I see it is if they increased everyone's tax ban by that 1%, everyone feels the measure of, yeah, we've all supported the government to come out of the deficit. Whereas, and they're the biggest sources of income for tax from a tax perspective. Whereas the speculation is capital gains tax and smaller taxes, but the amount that the government actually get from that isn't as significant as income tax, national insurance, or VAT. Yeah, the problem is, correct me if I'm wrong. You know, if if they increase income tax for lower earners surely that has a has a negative effect on those people that are most vulnerable. Yes, but then I guess there's other ways to look at it is that they could, I guess, play with the reliefs that are available. So maybe the at the moment for income tax purposes, everyone has a personal allowance unless you're earning over 100K. Um, they could tinker with that, reduce that down. So somewhat like people are still paying more tax. I understand what you're saying about lower earners being um, negatively impacted, but I think the bigger issue is that all the wealthy people or the higher earners always think they're they're being targeted and this would be a more fairer approach. Yeah. So in, income tax seems like the one that would raise the most money quickly. Obviously, it's it's one of the biggest earners for the government, as you said. The, the, the fact I heard that was that if they increase income tax from 20 to 25 percent, it would raise about an extra 25 billion a year of tax for the UK government. Now, that is a lot, and that is a, a lot quite quickly, but I guess it's still a long way off from making up the, the 375 billion that we talked about. Um, Seb, coming to you, I mean, what, what do you think about income tax, and, and do you think it's a place they will attack? Well, I think the issue you have with income tax um, is also there's always the political angle on this. Um, so they're not only looking at the best way to raise the money, it's also the best way to raise the money and maintain voters. Um, which is unfortunately the way it kind of works. Um, so I, my personal view is I don't think there'll be, well, if there, if there are any changes to income tax, there will be smaller ones as opposed to kind of wholesale increases. Um, for me, I, I, I think the main lever is around capital gains tax. Seems the most obvious one, but as we've been discussing it is unlikely to be sufficient to to pay for the deficit or even put a big dent in it. Um, it typically generates about ten billion pounds for the government. So again, even if you were to double that, it's still nowhere near enough. Um, an interesting stat on capital gains tax is that you know over fifty percent of the capital gains tax in the UK is paid by about ten thousand people. So. You know, politically, that seems quite an obvious one because it allows you to still maintain, you know, you would only be, I guess, 
it only impacts a small proportion of the population. So there's less risk attached from the government's perspective. Yeah, the political angle, I think, is a really important one to note, Seb. Um, my, my only, I guess, challenge to that would be that the Conservatives are not even a year into their five-year term in government. So so we do tend to find that, that throughout history, governments tend to make the more, uh, I would say, unpopular legislative changes around tax early on in their tenure. But I agree with you, it, it still can have a lasting, lasting Im- impact on the voters. So they will want to be careful of that. Um, Trish, I, I guess, you know, talking about capital gains tax, taking a step back quickly, could you just give us a couple of, of, of um, examples where someone would pay capital gains tax? Because I think, you know, it, it's good to highlight exactly what that means for people, because so many people don't pay capital gains tax. Um, one of the main times you would pay, usually you pay capital gains tax on the sale of an asset. So if you had a second property or um, paintings, etc., um, a common time when uh, people pay, pay capital gains tax, which they don't realise they're liable for, is when they're um, awarded shares with their employers, which is becoming like a very common um, way of rewarding or awarding their staff. Obviously, when those um, clients then or those customers then sell those shares, there's capital gains tax due then. At the moment, obviously, you've got your capital gains exemption, um, which is another topic that um, I've read articles about. They might scrap that or reduce that as well. Okay, so the capital gains tax exemption at the moment is £12,300. So you're saying that they just get rid of that altogether, potentially? That's what I've read. (laughs) Um. I guess because it, it hits a smaller population, it's one of a, it's an easy win, isn't it? Yeah, I think it it, it definitely is an, an easier win, and to Seb's point, you know, you lose less voters through that. Um, I guess the the challenge is is that it's not going to fill a hole that that is is as large as we've seen over the last few months. Um, coming on to ch- changing gear slightly and coming on to things like stamp duty. Um, obviously, there's been huge reliefs recently with with stamp duty and that's due to end at the end of March. Seb, I know they've done stuff in the past, but would they ever attack stamp duty again? Well, again, it's not a particular, particularly popular tax. Um, but I mean, what we've seen is that it's been it, the, the recent stamp duty holiday has been very, very effective. Um, to be honest, we, we thought that well, we found the property market to be very buoyant after lockdown. Um, and you know, it added an extra gear um, the the stamp duty holiday. So there are quite a few rumours that that might get extended um, because it has been very, very. Um, it has incentivised a lot of people to move. Um, so we shall see. I don't think they will tinker too much with the rates because they have actually, you know, been changing those quite a lot over the last few years. Um, but I think we're more likely to see an extension to the holiday. Not all doom and gloom. No, just to recap on what that means for for a lot of people is that um, particularly if you're around London and you're looking at properties over 500k, it can mean as much as a a 15 grand tax saving on your stamp duty. Um, And it's been structured in a different way to, to the normal stamp duty rates. And previously you'd have um, the first element that's exempt or a reduced rate, but over a certain property valuation, it wouldn't apply. But it's done in a different way this time around that even any property 
uh, over 500k will still benefit from the initial exemption. And it also applies to investment properties. Um, so that's another key point. Yeah, it's a really good point. And I think to, to, to touch on why they did that, because I know that's been asked a lot, obviously, when people buy houses, it, it buoys lots of other different markets. So you, you'll see solicitors busy, estate agents busy, um, furniture shops get busier because people are needing new furniture when they move. So it does have a real knock on positive effect on, on the economy. And, and to Seb's point earlier, you know, GDP growth is another way in which they help reduce some of this this uh, hole that we've created over the last couple of months. Um, so I think one of the areas that I did really want to touch on, um, because I feel like this has been less covered um, in the press, but th- there has been the odd talk about a wealth tax, and there's been countries across Europe who have, have tried this in the past. Trish, any any thoughts on that? So, so I guess how would a wealth tax work in practice, and and is it something that you think that they'd ever look at? Um, so the way it would work, and the way it works in other countries, is is based on your asset base. Um, so whatever your total assets are, some countries have a tiering system. So if they fall within certain brackets, you pay a charge every year. Um, but then those countries tend not to have like an inheritance tax or a death tax or they'll have a really small rate of tax at that level. I think in the UK, it can work, but then they'd have to revisit the whole inheritance tax side of things, because otherwise you're paying tax on the same assets twice. And obviously inheritance tax is is inherently, if you will, um, the most unpopular tax out there. A lot of people see it as pay tax throughout their life and then paying this this extra tax when they pass assets down a generation. So it would feel funny, uh, I assume you agree, Trish, to, to introduce another tax along along those lines. Yeah. Yeah, and I would say it would be a very unpopular tax. If you look at the countries that currently employ a wealth tax in Europe, which is Spain, Norway, Switzerland and Belgium, um, yeah, they, they there's lots of challenges in terms of how you actually administer it. You know, because you can be very asset rich but cash poor and therefore if you're getting an annual tax... You know, you've got to have enough cash in the bank to pay for it. So unfortunately, it means that the compliance rate is very, very low in a lot of those countries. Um, and therefore, it generates a very low tax revenue for the government. Um, the only only kind of um, country that's doing a little bit better there in, that, in those um, examples is Switzerland. Um, so I think it'd be quite a radical move. Um, but it doesn't appear to be that effective looking at um, other examples. So an example there would be be someone has an expensive house in London, um, all their money tied up in that property, no other assets. And in that example, they'd have to sell the property to pay their wealth tax. It, it seems, I, I guess it seems like a really difficult thing to bring in, particularly in, in a society like ours, which has those other forms of tax like inheritance, as, as, as Trishna said. Yeah, that's um, that's really interesting. I think I agree. I mean, I think I, that they would struggle to bring in some sort of wealth tax. Um, the, the other one that has been talked about quite a lot, and <laughs> this is always talked about whenever we're um, ahead of any budgets or, or any upcoming government announcements, is pensions. Um, they've been tinkered with so frequently in the past. Seb, I mean, do you want to give us a quick run through as to, to the types of things that the government have tinkered with pensions before and, and um, then we'll delve into in that in a bit more detail. Sure yeah so there's been quite a few levers that the government have, have 
pulled, I guess, that effectively reduced the amount of tax relief that they've paid out and also reduced the amount that investors can squirrel away in tax efficient environments. Um, the two main areas to look at are the amount that you can pay in on an annual basis. There's been changes almost every year on this um, and relatively complex rules that a lot of people are, some people are still not aware of. Um, the, the big change in 2016 tax year was effectively a movement towards um, a tapering. So it's based on your earnings. So converse, as you probably wouldn't expect, um, the more you earn, the less that you can put in your pension. Um, and that was again tinkered with in April to make it slightly more generous. So it impacts those who are higher earners. But the, the long and short of it is you can put a lot less into your pension and get the valuable tax relief back from the government. At the other end of the spectrum, if we're looking at actually how much you can build up in a pension, um, you know, historically it was unlimited. So you could build up very large pensions very tax efficiently. Um, over the last decade, it's gradually reduced down um, and we've ended up at something called the lifetime allowance, which is the cap on pensions to around about a million pounds, but it's increasing with inflation each year. Um, so that is massively reduced. And for a lot of wealthy individuals, that's not a large enough sum to effectively pay for their retirement. And also they may be in a situation if they're high earners that they can't actually even get to that million pound figures because it's no longer tax efficient to actually pay into a pension. So those are the kind of main challenges. Obviously, tax relief for the government is is expensive because uh, if you're an additional rate taxpayer, you can almost double your money by paying into a pension. Um, so it is very attractive, but um, the, the opportunities to save into pensions uh, has reduced over time. The fa and, and it's a really good point because the, the facts that were reported back in 2016 when they changed the amount you could put into a pension was that it would save the government about 37 billion a year in the tax relief that they give out. So that is a huge, huge tax break um, that the government managed to tighten. And I don't know if you feel this, Seb, but you, you speak to clients all the time. Does it not feel like people know that, that they need to save more for their retirement, yet the government keeps slapping on the hand for doing that in pensions? Is there a sense of that with clients? Yeah, I've had some quite challenging conversations with clients where it's felt like the messenger's being shot slightly because we're often delivering bad news. Um, but yeah, it, it, I mean, it's quite counterintuitive because ultimately the government doesn't want us to rely on the state for retirement funding, yet our most obvious avenue to save for retirement is being gradually taken away. So, so yeah, I can, I can kind of see the challenges. Um, ultimately, how we've been helping clients is looking at alternative avenues. Obviously, the pension is often you know, the first port of call because it's very tax efficient. However, there's plenty of other vehicles that you can use to supplement income in retirement. Um, but yeah, it's, a, it's been a tough one. I suspect we'll continue to see some changes over time. Um, you know, it is quite a strange system whereby those who are higher earners get more tax relief. And actually, the the stats suggest that it's the higher rate taxpayers that are taking advantage of the tax relief, whilst it's the basic rate taxpayers who are not taking advantage of it enough. Um, so, 
whether, uh, you know, what it has been massively rumoured in the last few years, but has never or not yet come into fruition is the flat rate. So increasing the tax relief for basic rates, but then reducing it down for higher rates. Seems a logical approach, makes it fair across the board, incentivizes the basic rate taxpayers more, and actually the higher rate taxpayers will probably still do it anyway because it's still a good option, um, but we haven't seen that yet. Yeah, I think that's really, really an interesting point, and, and again, an, an obvious one for the government to potentially look at because it, it doesn't tend to lose too many voters. Trish, uh, in, from the inheritance tax standpoint, pensions um, obviously went through some changes a few years ago. Do, do you see any threat to, to pensions and inheritance tax? Uh, not particularly, because obviously at the moment, the pensions sit outside an individual's pot of estate. I guess the only thing they could really do is maybe start including that as part of your estate and then charging inheritance tax on that amount as well. But I don't think they'll do that because, again, it's there's too many. If you think of the political side of it, there's too many people they're going to upset with that, right? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, the, the last one I, I did want to touch on, because this has been reported um, quite a bit in, in recent years before we, we had everything going on with COVID, self-employed, employed, um, obviously there are different tax rates and, and they've been talked about a lot over recent years. They've changed, they've tinkered with it um, from time to time. Trish, is, is there anything they, they do to the self-employed on, on national insurance or, or corporation tax for limited companies? Do you, do you see any changes there? I think they'll freeze. So over the years, they've been trying to reduce the amount of corporation tax. Um, but I think they'll freeze that for the foreseeable um, rather than giving more relief there. And I think with national insurance, there's a potential to increase that in line with an employee. So from 9% or 2% to 13%. Okay. So at, at the moment, if you're a self-employed sole trader, as it were, you pay a 9% national insurance, but as an employee, you pay 12. Is that is that right? That's correct. And then the employer pays another 13%. Fine. So again, it, it would seem like an, an easy, quick win for the government to, to potentially tweak something there. Yeah. Great. And um, I think, you know, what one thing we do need to mention here is that we clearly had a budget coming up in autumn. It's been scrapped as of, as of a couple of weeks ago. Um, they're now talking about a spring budget, which, you know, we would we would think has to go ahead now, given that everyone's going to need a little bit more clarity about what the future looks like at that point. Um, there are people out there saying that maybe it's wrong to have a budget whilst we're still in any sort of COVID drama or, or any sort of hangover from what's been happening. So maybe it gets pushed back again. I, I don't know whether you, you see something like that happening, Seb, or, or is your view that they need to have one sooner rather than later? Well, I, I kind of agree um, with the the logic of delaying the the autumn budget. Um, you know, ultimately, to put together a plan of how to fix the situation, you kind of need to know the extent of the situation. We're by no means out of the woods yet. If anything, it's getting worse as we're recording this. Um, so. Ultimately, I, I think we can't really start looking at making changes until the recovery has started and is underway. Um, and so I, I agree with the with the deferral um, and it seemed the most logical thing to do, really. So, guys, I think we've covered the, the, the main options for the, the government there. 
Um, what I would like to do before we end, uh, as ever, is get you to put your neck on the line. So, Seb, prediction time. I'm not telling you to put your uh, your flat on this, but if you had to say where Rishi Sunak was going to make some changes, what would be your guess? Good question. Um, so, I mean, my view is that CGT will be targeted um, and it will be more aligned to income tax. So effectively, it will be brought up to speed with income tax, which effectively means it would be doubled for certain or, or even more than that for certain individuals. Um, and potentially the annual exemption is reduced or, or completely uh, removed. Um, I think it will be an immediate change as well. If we look back at some of the changes that have happened in the past, particularly with capital gains tax, um, George Osborne in the in the June 2010 budget changed it immediately. More recently, the entrepreneur's relief was changed pretty much immediately in the March 2020 budget. So all things point to actually if they're going to change it, they have to do it immediately. Otherwise, they create a window where there'll be disposals at the lower tax rate. Um, the other thing to bear in mind is that capital gains tax isn't necessarily immediate. Aside from residential property, particularly second properties now where an interim tax return has to be completed and the tax is paid within 30 days, other forms of capital gains through shares, for example, actually there is quite a, a long period between the point of disposal and actually the point at which the tax is paid. So, for example, if you're selling a share in September 2020, actually you've got until January, the end of January 2022, to pay the tax. So even if you make the change now, it's going to take a while for any of the tax receipts to actually catch up with the government. So delaying the point at which that's introduced doesn't seem that logical, in my opinion. So that's that's my view. Great. Super useful. And, and Trish, any, anything to add with that? Do you vastly disagree with Seb? Not really. I think because he's asked the whole, um, like, looking into the whole tax regime for capital gains tax purposes, I think, yeah, that's probably where he's going to focus. But I do think he's probably going to try and tackle some of the reliefs that are available as well and restrict those down. But overall, I think Seb's got it all covered. And I think I think we've always been taught to uh, never bring up a problem without a solution. So I want to finish this, this uh, podcast on a positive note and, and come up with a couple of ideas as to how anyone listening could potentially plan for these changes. And I think, you know, all the usual caveats in that that it's got to be specific to your own situation and you need to seek advice if you're if you're looking to make any of these changes. But are there any silver bullets or or things that clients should be thinking about at this stage, Seb? Yeah, I, I don't think it should influence a decision too much, but Ultimately, if you're planning on doing something, whether that's selling an asset anyway, um, and it's just maybe financial inertia that's preventing you from actually doing it now, it, you may want to consider doing it before the next budget. Um, but you know, ultimately, making financial decisions on hearsay and anticipation, we don't normally recommend However, for example, if you have some shares and you plan to sell some down anyway to you know, diversify, um, then you may want to do it before the, the budget just to eliminate any potential risk. So I think just use take advantage of any annual exemptions that you plan to. So maybe it just brings forward some of the end of tax year planning that you perhaps anticipated to be doing. 
Yeah, really good. And and as ever, always speak to an expert before you you do any of these things because there's lots of individual circumstantial points that can make a big difference to to what you're looking to do. So it might not be as easy as selling an asset now because there might be other considerations to take into account um, that that we wouldn't know about. So it's it's always worth speaking to an expert. Um, Trish, anything to add before we tie up? No, that's everything from me. Fantastic. Well, I think there was lots of of useful information in there and and thanks very much to to Trish and Seb for joining me today. I think in summary from FLM and the Free Like Me podcast, it's really a time to be reviewing your situation, reviewing all of the assets you have, your goals, your longer term objectives and seeing whether any of these potential changes could change or derail the plans that you already have in place. So always have a plan, always review it. Nothing's changed in that sense. And it's a really, really good time to be just getting back on top of your finances. We live in a slightly different world than we did a year ago. It's always a good point of time to really check back in and make sure everything is set up as it should be. So thanks again to my guest, Trish. Thanks for thanks for coming. Seb, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. Cheers, Ben. And ladies and gentlemen, we will see you next time for the Free Like Me podcast. Thank you.